Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership, where we explore all facets of leadership. Today, our studio guest is Winston Lau of Winston Lau and Associates. Winston, I want to thank you for joining this joining us this week to explore the topic of leadership and the executive mindset. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great, and it's a real pleasure to be here, Darrell. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, Winston, it would be great if you can share with our audience a little bit about, about your background and currently what you're doing in the space of executive coaching. I'd be glad to do that. You know, Darrell, I uh, started out in the corporate world and spent 25-plus years in uh, virtually every capacity in, uh, you know, large corporations, everything from IT to uh, manufacturing to uh, finance, uh, distribution, marketing, and the last 10 years of my career, actually, I was uh, fortunate enough to be president and CEO of several companies. And um, so that's my background. I really knew nothing about coaching. And how did you um, not stumble, but how did you make your way into coaching? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, although we have people like myself today that uh, call ourselves coaches, uh, in fact, we, as long as we work with people, we are always coaching people or we're being coached. Let's face it, you know, it's part of the relationship. And uh, it really didn't dawn on me on what I was really doing and how important it is to really help people to achieve their potentials until I became a CEO. I was uh, CEO of a company in Canada uh, from 1990 to 1995. And for those of you who could remember that period, and 1990 was when we enacted NAFTA, you know, that's the North American Free Trade Agreement. And the essence of that agreement was within 10 years, the tariffs for a lot of the uh, products between U.S., Canada, and Mexico would just go down to nothing. Well, what does that have to do with me? Well, uh, I was in my company, I had three lines of businesses, and NAFTA basically destroyed two out of the three lines of businesses for me. And uh, on top of that, if you remember back uh, in those years, the economy was terrible uh, in the United States as well as in Canada. So we were under a lot of pressure, too. Well, the, the bottom line of all of that was uh, within about two, two and a half years' time, I had to downsize my company uh, 50%. I had to sell off some businesses. I had to make some acquisitions. I spent over 60% of my time either recruiting people, you know, that people I need but I don't have, or uh, talking and try to convince, encourage, coach, do whatever it is I can to get the people that I do have to do what it is that I need them to do, but somehow they don't think they can do it or they're not committed to doing it or whatever. So uh, never thought I would be doing that as a CEO, but that was really my, you know, that was really what hit home to me. And after, you know, all of that, uh, it really made me, realize what my real role is in leading people is really, you know, let's face it, we don't lead buildings, we don't lead machine tools, uh, we lead people. You know? right. So no matter what our problems were, it always ends up with getting the right people, getting them committed to what it is you have to do. You know, even as a CEO, I realized how helpless I was. In, after you um, were moving out of your transitioning from your one role, what motivated you to do executive coaching? Well, early on in my career, I was fortunate enough to have taken a, an advanced uh, management skills program under a, an, an individual by, by the name of Dr. Walter Mahler. 
Uh, for those of you who might have read the book uh, called A Leadership Pipeline, uh, the authors gave credit to Dr. Mahler, who's the one who actually uh, developed that particular model. And so I've always uh, you know, felt that I would want to be doing something like Dr. Mahler was doing, which was to you know, help individuals to realize their potential. And secondly, uh, in my last 10 years of my corporate life as CEOs, where I spend most of my time working with people, it really uh, convinced me that uh, that's where I want to contribute my time and energy for the rest of my life. Tell us about your first experience uh, with your first client as an executive coach. Uh, what were some of the key themes that came out of the session, and how did you help that individual to uh, move forward in their professional career? Well, my first client was actually a very interesting client. Uh, this particular individual uh, was a, a, a marketing genius and a very entrepreneurial individual. And somehow he uh, decided to get a corporate job, and he had a terrible time uh, fitting into a corporate culture. On the one hand, they value his entrepreneurship, uh, on the other hand, they also want him to do things certain ways, you know. And and then, of course, for him, he really didn't want to do it that way. They did not, you know. So there was a lot of mismatch in culture and style and understanding what he has to offer and what the company has to have in order to succeed. So my coaching assignment was for this particular individual. Actually, I was hired by the company to work with him, uh, was to, you know, put it mildly, straighten him out. <laughs> <laughs> but then shortly after we got into the assignment, I realized that it really wasn't about straightening him out. It was about helping him to understand how he can take his gift in marketing and fit into the corporate culture. So there was a lot of uh, uh, coaching on uh, uh, you know, what would work in a corporate environment versus an entrepreneurial environment and also how he can adapt his culture. I never wanted him to totally change the way he do things because obviously you know, he was successful. But on the other hand, it was really an appreciation of you know, what works within a larger organization and also what his role was. You know, as an entrepreneur, he did everything. You know, and in an organization, well, he couldn't do everything because there were other people in place as well, and he has to value them, he has to honor them, he has to learn to lead them. You know, so it was, it, that's what the coaching was all about. How long did that assignment last? Well, that one lasted quite a while, actually. Initially, it was six months, and then we actually went about nine or ten months. Mm -hmm. um, in, it, uh, it, it was a challenging assignment. Of course, it was my first one. And secondly, it was an interesting situation. Yeah. And uh, what tools did you use to help motivate him, inspire him to improve? Well, a, a number of tools that we use. In that particular time, we used some kind of a personality uh, assessment to help him to understand uh, what are some of his strengths and weaknesses and so forth. I also, you know, did a lot of interview what we call the 360 interview. I talked to his boss, I talked mm -hmm. to his peers, I talked to his uh, uh, direct reports and tried to play back to him how he impacts people. Uh, you know, it's interesting uh, when you talk about an individual. What is an individual? Well, there's always at least two versions, if not more, of an individual. One version is the individual's perception of himself or herself. Another image is others' perception or experience of that individual. And interestingly enough, the two quite often are not the same. And when they are miles apart, that's when we have huge problems, huge problems. Because think about it, you know, we can only behave uh, 
in you know in alignment with our concept of ourselves. So if I think I'm the smartest guy in the world and I always have the right answer, guess what? I would obviously behave to that belief. You know, I would come into a meeting and offer my expertise and answers to people. Now, people may look at me and say, well, you know, this is the dumbest guy I've ever, you know, I've never worked with. But that's not my perception, and I would not know that, and therefore I would continue to behave the way I perceive myself. Uh, and, and that is the problem. And in this particular individual, he walked into the a corporate situation with an entrepreneur background, and he was very good in what he did. But a lot of the stuff that he did would not fly in a corporation. So what we try to do is to give him that kind of a feedback and also help him to understand how his behavior impacts people. You know, another thing that's interesting in coaching, too, is that there's quite often a big difference between the intent of a behavior and the impact of a behavior. For example, most of us probably would not intentionally say something to hurt somebody, but quite often we do that unintentionally because the person who received that message interpret differently mm -hmm. from the way we intended. But how do we know that? Right. How do we know that we don't? Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes we may get some feedback. Sometimes we don't. And if we don't, we continue to behave that way. Guess what? At the end, we ruin a relationship. We don't get any results. We don't get the cooperation. Mm. You know, usually that's what we find out. Right. You know, as a company's culture is uh, always evolving, but there's always some um, clear uh, characteristics of a company's culture. When you have a new individual that comes into that culture, uh, they're bringing with them their characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that sometimes the company culture will embrace some of those characteristics and will evolve to a higher level so that some of the individual's uh, success traits are now uh, one of the main traits of the company culture? Uh, it really depends. I would say more often than not, the company culture would tend to shape the individual to the point of actually even extinguishing that individual's, you know, contribution. Uh, now, obviously, you know, if you bring in a person with uh, uh, high enough visibility, with enough power to make change, you know, like a Jack Welch in the GE, mm -hmm. obviously he was able to right. change the GE right. culture. But more often than not, you don't have that. More often than not, you bring in an individual. And, coach, you know, I'm glad you brought up culture. I would say that more often than not, an individual fail in a situation, not because that individual is good or bad, is how well that individual fits with the, with the organization culture. I mean, organization culture is such an overwhelming thing. It is, you know, it is kind of like the human body. So what happens when you put a new heart into a human body? Well, guess what the body does? The body says, mm -mm, I don't like that. You know, that's a foreign object. You know, it's not me. So what does the body do? The body does everything it could to get rid of that heart. And that's what culture does. In your, in your uh, experience, have you had assignments where you had a CEO to ask you to come in to evaluate the culture and make recommendations as to how they can improve their culture? Very much so. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm working with a, a CEO and CEO of a company uh, you know, both of them were partners, started this company about 10 years ago, and they did very well. They took the company from zero to about $100 million or something like that, and they've just gotten, uh, uh, you know, some equity investors to come in with, uh, with a large sum of money. So 
they went out and they make a big acquisition, one that's actually a little bigger than than you know than they were, and a company that has a very very different culture. So all of a sudden they realize that oops, they got a culture problem, and believe it or not, you know, culture is everything when you integrate organizations. You know, mm-hmm. it really it, it it is absolutely critical. If you cannot get the culture worked out, the organization would fail, and that's really what. Uh, uh, Lou Gertzner found out when he took over IBM in 1990, I believe. He mm-hmm. ran it for 10 years, and Gertzner was a McKinsey guy, you know, uh, great in strategy. He thought, well, gee, I can just go to IBM and, you know, and work on their strategy and redirect the company and we'll be successful. And if you read his book after he retired from IBM, he would tell you that culture was everything. Mm-hmm. It was culture, you know, it, he was successful in IBM because he was able to bring about the culture change in IBM. Mm-hmm. And I would say more often than not, that's the determining factor for success in businesses. You know, uh, going back to an earlier discussion point, uh, you had mentioned the leadership pipeline. Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the leadership pipeline book and why it's important for um, CEOs and COOs and leaders of their companies to to really understand what the leadership pipeline is and how it can help them to have long-term success. Well, actually, it's important for everybody to understand the pipeline. What what the leadership pipeline uh, model is all about is that you know for most of us, uh, we go to get an education, whatever that might be, you know, college degree, high school, trade school, whatever it is. And what we try to do at that time is to acquire some kind, some body of knowledge or some skill that would allow us to go get us a job, right? And uh, so the first job in most cases uh, is what we call an individual contributor, right? We are hired to do something. Hopefully, we know how to do that. We have the knowledge and skills to do that. So we work hard, and uh, guess what? You know, lo and behold, in a couple of years' time, uh, our boss come to us and say, hey, Winston, you know you did a good job. I'm going to give you a raise and I'm give you a promotion. So now you're, you're a group leader. you got a couple of people working for you. Well, what's the implication of that in terms of behavioral science? You know, I just got reinforced what I, for what I've been doing as the right thing. So therefore, the implication is I better go do more of it, right, mm-hmm. to be more successful. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so then I work harder and whatever, and guess what? You know, lo and behold, a couple of years later, I got promoted again, so now I'm the supervisor of the group. And you can see how that pro- progression mm-hmm. goes. And most of us, that's, that's how we would respond. And what a leadership pipeline says is there's distinctly six different crossroads. Like when you cross from uh, being an individual contributor to being a, uh, a manager or supervisor, well, it's not doing more of the same. It's not working harder. In fact, at that point, your, your focus change, your scope change, your accountability change, and the way they measure your success changes. For example, you know, when, you, when you're managing people, you're no longer being judged for how well you can get the job done. You're being judged with how well you can, you can build capabilities and help your people to be able to uh, get the work done. You know, so uh, Jack Welch says that, you know, he said when, once you become a leader, uh, it's no longer, you know, it's not lo- no longer what you're able to accomplish uh, that's being measured. You actually live off the reflected glory of your team's success. If your team wins, you win. I mean, think about a coach for a football team, you know. Very rarely do they, do they say, well, you know, the team has a lousy season, but the coach did a great job. 
Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that never happens. Right. You know, the team wins the Super Bowl, the coach gets a nice bonus and right. you know, and That's a write right. up and a ring and everything else. That's right. So at that point, you know, it really is the team yep. that, that, that you are responsible for. So in the leadership pipeline, he laid out, you know, uh, six of these crossroads mm -hmm. and 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 how and and, and and how the focus changes every time when you go through one of these crossroads. And you better, and, 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 and the real thing too is every time when your road changes, by definition, uh, you are being asked to do something new and something differently. And by definition, you also have to uh, learn something differently. Mm -hmm. But very few of us do that, and, and it's not obvious to us when right. we do that. Right. So that's why I think the, lead, you know, the Leadership Pipeline is a valuable book for, for anybody. You know, it's one, one thing I like to point out that you said is very significant. You've, you've been very successful and you're promoted because of the success that you have had. And like you said, you want to go to this next level. Mm -hmm. You want to keep doing what you've been doing before. But as you realize, oh, that my job has changed. Right. Um, what type of programs do you see companies putting in place to prepare folks for that uh, transition it, it is very tough you know I grapple with that too and I, I often wonder well gee you know why don't they teach some of that in in, in in MBA grad schools or whatever you know I've been to an MBA program too and they didn't teach me that well I guess what I walk away with was that not only do we have to you know do we have to have the opportunity to learn the new skills we also have to have the awareness and receptivity to learn those new skills let me give you an example uh, I was an undergrad uh, at one time and in my freshman and sophomore year I had to take something called microeconomics and mm -hmm. macroeconomics mm -hmm. and I was a teenager at the time never worked a day in my life and I walk into these classes and I say good grief you know I these are the these were terrible classes. They're totally theoretical, no application. I don't know why we should be required to take this. And I struggled, you know, just mm -hmm. to get by. And guess what? I, you know, got my undergraduate degree, got a job, worked for five years, and then went back to get my MBA at night. Well, guess what I had to do? <laughs> I had to take those two exact courses again. And I said to myself, oh, my God, I can't believe I got to go through this again. <laughs> and you know what? The second time around, those courses made them made a lot of sense to me and I really love them. Well, what has changed? Of courses haven't changed. I have changed, you know. My uh, my experience has prepared me to appreciate what those courses are all about mm -hmm. and I also uh, realized I need that uh, knowledge at the time. But how do you teach someone before they need it, before they know they need it? Mm -hmm. You know, so that's not an easy thing to do. So my uh, what I walk away from is I think uh, really a lot of that has to do with continuous learning and coaching. You know, the coaching is really uh, helping the person, you know, on a real-time basis as he or she needs it. Mm -hmm. I mean, a big part of our coaching right now, particularly with the economy the way it is, that companies are making changes a lot faster than they mm -hmm. used to, and when they put somebody into a new job, they expect that person to hit the deck and running, like now, not right. six months from now or 12 right. months from now. You know, that used to be the case. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the coaching work we do is what we call transition coaching. That is to help the person to learn his new role quickly and hit the deck running quickly and start producing quickly. I mean, companies are no longer uh, willing to wait uh, six months or 12 months for this person to get on board. As a matter of fact, I recently called in to, uh, to coach a uh, group president uh, running about a $2 billion group. 
-hmm. six businesses under him, and he's three months into the job, and they already see uh, signs of concern, and they want to get me in there quickly to either fix him or they're going to do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, they are no longer willing to wait. And how do you get started with an individual? Uh, what are some of the, 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 the key tactics that you use? Because, you know, change is not easy for everyone. Uh, for us to look in the mirror and say, I want to be better, I want to change ABC. Well, change is not easy at all. You know, first of all, uh, we're all creatures of habit. None of us like to change. Mm -hmm. You know, even something like uh, going to the gym is difficult. I, <laughs> I can tell you, I struggle with that, you know. I even go as far as paying my dues every month, but getting myself to the gym, that's a whole different story. But that's change, mm -hmm. you know. So first of all, none, none of us like to change. Secondly, change quite often uh, puts us in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. You know, mm -hmm. we have to admit that. We need to change, and nobody likes to do that, right. particularly if you're successful. Mm -hmm. What happens quite often is you really have to be experiencing a certain amount of pain before you're willing to change. For example, you're talking about you know being overweight, and I know we talk to many overweight people, and they will you know they will never want to change as long as life is good. I have a very good friend who's very overweight, but he tells tells me he said my checkup is fine, my blood pressure is fine, no need to. Well, until he got diabetes, all of a sudden, he's all now I need to. Right. You know, so it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Usually with an executive, uh, he or she would encounter a problem. And then, you know, the boss would say, hey, you got a problem. You got to do something. I don't know what you got to do. I hire you a coach, but these are the things I need you to achieve. You know, usually it's stated in terms of business results. And then we come in and say, okay, what do you have to change in order to get these business results? Uh, and then try to help them to recognize that. So really the motivation for change, to me, always comes from uh, really uh, weighing, you know, what's the difference between changing and not changing, you know? And, and, and what should someone expect the first, let's say, 10 days of your coaching? Well, I don't know that you can really measure anything in 10 days, I would say. Well, not it, measure, but know. what should they expect in regards well, what, to... Um, tools or tests or well i would say the first 10 days uh, not a great deal what what i usually do is i would start with what i call a a uh, a rapport building session with the with the individual that i'm coaching as a matter of fact i'm doing one this afternoon mm -hmm. and what i do is i go in and try to get to know the individual try to establish a rapport with the individual and the rapport goes both ways mm -hmm. you know and coaching is such a personal thing that uh, chemistry is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say to, say it to the audience right now, you know, if you don't have the right chemistry with somebody, then that's not the right coach for you. You gotta that's find right. somebody else that you can work with and trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the second thing is I try to get a sense of how the individual sees the problem. And the reason for that is to really try to gauge how coachable this individual is. For example, if the individual doesn't think that he has any problems at all and is totally not open to any kind of an input, that problem, that person is probably not coachable at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I know that? Well, I usually, you know, in the case of corporations, I generally get to talk to the person's boss about how he or she sees the problem. I get to talk to their organization development person or the HR partner, whoever it might be. So I get some input on other people experience this individual, and then I go talk to the individual, and then I have to make some judgment mm -hmm. as, is this individual ready for coaching? Mm -hmm. 
And if it is, depending on the problems, uh, I would, uh, you know, I would uh, recommend using various assessments. I would also then do interviews and so forth. You know, whatever we try to do is really to achieve one thing, is to bring the reality to this individual, to confront him or her against his or her own perception. You know, what I try to show the individual is this is how the world experiences you and this is how you see yourself. We have a gap here. And for you to be successful, we have to close this gap. Now, the question then for the individual who asks is, why do I need to do that? You know, why do I need to go through the pain? Well, that's, you know, that's sometimes it's what we call consequence management. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, what's the difference between uh, not doing anything versus uh, doing something? And quite often, uh, it's the consequence of not doing something. You know, nobody has to change. Mm-hmm. And I cannot make anybody change. Okay, so, you know, that person has to see some benefit for changing. Otherwise, there's no reason to change. Right, right. Uh, one of your the favorite tools that I recall when you were my executive coach some years ago uh, was the inventory sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, uh, I had a problem of working uh, from 6 in the morning mm-hmm. to 12 at night. Um, but then I would take care of all of the uh, important stuff at the worst hour of the day, which was at 10 o'clock <laughs> at night. Tell us a little bit more about this inventory sheet and, and why it's so significant in helping a leader to understand um, how they're managing their day. Well, I think one of the things that, that I, I did for you at that time was that uh, you were working very, very long hours, if I recall. Uh, you had a global responsibility with people in mm-hmm. different time zones and so forth. And you were very conscientious, so you wanted to take care of everything. The reality is at your level, you know, there's no way you can do everything yourself, uh, no matter how hard you try. Right. Then it really becomes a matter of priority. And I believe what I did for you uh, was what we call in our uh, trade uh, shadowing. I, I mm-hmm. shadow you one day, which means I just follow you and observe what you did. And then I play back to you, you know, in terms of, you know, what were some of the things that you did and how did you spend your time? And then it was really up to you to take a look at those things and saying, well, A, should I be doing this? Or maybe B, uh, I should have delegated this. I really shouldn't be doing it. Or C, I have no business at all whatsoever to even have anything to do with this. And, uh, and I think at that time, you know, you quickly come to the conclusion that about your third of your day, you were spending doing things that you shouldn't even be doing. And so a lot of people say, I don't have time. Well, we always have time to do the things we want to do. The, 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 the real key is make sure the things we want to do are the things we need to do. Okay. I love that box. I still use that four-corner uh, box today, the important, urgent, not important, not urgent. And that really simplifies life for me. Well, that's a great model, and it's something you can communicate to somebody. As a matter of fact, I owe that to... Uh, uh, to uh, the fellow who wrote a book on the seven habits, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kobe. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, confuse the difference between important and urgent. Of course, you know, if it's something urgent, we know we got to do it right away. And the interesting thing is, you know, something that's important but not urgent, we can always do it tomorrow. And there's always a tomorrow. You know, Winston, we are almost out of time for this segment. But if you could, is there a, you have mentioned a few books um, today uh, during our discussion, but is there a book that you would like to uh, highlight that uh, folks who are looking to improve their leadership style uh, could read? 
Well, you know, I, if you remember during our conversation today, we talk about uh, how important it is to, uh, to hit the deck and running when you have a transition uh, into a new role. And I can recommend a book called The First 90 Days. It's by Michael Watkins. And Michael Watkins uh, came out of Harvard, and uh, he is the uh, you know, world's famous authority on this whole issue of uh, what we call transitioning. That is, when you go from one job to another. And he really, in this book, he gives a very clear roadmap as to the kinds of things that you have to do uh, and more importantly, the kind of learnings you have to have in order to be successful. So I would highly recommend uh, anybody, uh, you know, Excellent. to I'm, get that I'm, book. I'm going to pick that up and read that myself. Yeah. Uh, what about a good quote to inspire our audience? Well, you know, it's uh, recently I was at the uh, Olympic Training Center in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I saw somebody walking around the campus with a shirt, uh, with a uh, with a quote printed on it that really inspired me. And the quote was from somebody called Steve Prefontaine. I didn't know who Steve oh, Prefontaine yes. was. Oh, yes. He was a runner between 19, actually had a very short life. He lived from 1951 to 1975 and mm -hmm. died of a car accident. Mm. And he was known as, you know, as one of those that really, really uh, pushes the limit in his yes. running. And the quote says this, it says, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. So I would like to leave that with our audience to think about. Awesome, awesome quote. Well, Winston, it's been a real pleasure. And you're going to come back next week to share some more insights on executive leadership. Well, I would enjoy that. And thank you very much, Director.